You're listening to a sermon from Oak Hill Fellowship Church, located in Strasburg, Pennsylvania. You can learn more about us by visiting oakhillfellowship.com or finding us on social media. Now grab a Bible, a notebook, and get ready to be spiritually enriched by the Word of God. You can open your Bibles to 1 Peter uh, chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there are always some out on our welcome table. You would even be welcome to slip out right now and grab one. And uh, there should be a page number in your sermon notes, in your bulletin, uh, that would have uh, where, where our passage today is uh, for you. And we would love to, for you to keep that Bible if you do not have a Bible at all. And if you do, you can just return it back onto the welcome table. But uh, we love God's Word here. We love to preach God's Word uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, week after week. And uh, we, we believe that as we do that, uh, He plans what we're going to study each week. He, he has in mind exactly what we need at any given point in time. And, uh, and so God is directing the way this morning. And I truly believe through my study that He is directing us very, very clearly, and this passage is something that he wants to work in very powerfully this morning, and, uh, and so I'm anticipating him to speak in power to our hearts. Are you ready for that? You ready for that? So as, as you're uh, turning there to First Peter chapter 1, and as you find that place in your Bible, I want you to take a look around the room for a second, okay? Just, just take a look around the room. I know it's going to be awkward, but everybody else is doing it too. And so uh, take a look at the real uh, live faces that are around you. And I, I just wanted to, I want you to think about this question. Uh, why in the world would this particular group of people ever gather together naturally? Okay? Like, look around the room and just like take a look at all the different ages that are represented. And if you know any of the family histories maybe that are uh, in the room around you, uh, even the different places that we grew up, uh, think about all the different interests that we probably have, like, like different musical preferences and, and different uh, hobbies that we all enjoy and different TV shows that we like. How about all the different ways that we choose to school our children? Like, I know that many of us have very strong convictions about homeschooling, and, and many others have very strong convictions about sending their kids to public school, and, and others have very strong convictions about sending their kids to Christian school. And, and guess what? All of that is existing here together in one body because that's not the thing that we're united about. Think about all the different ways that we spend our week. All of the jobs that we have that are extremely dissimilar to the others. Think about all the ways that we like to use our free time. How about all the different life situations that are represented here? Uh, many people with uh, a decent amount of material wealth. Others uh, with, you know, uh, not a lot, but enough. God is bringing together a very diverse community when He builds His church. And, and so if you were to go anywhere else in the world, this group of people would not belong together. And if we were together, say at like a town hall meeting or something like that, that's like one of the few places that I could think that we actually would be together, uh, we'd probably be arguing with one another, because that's what you do. And so why in the world would this group of people want to be together week after week, often more than that, for hours at a time, uh, singing the same words off of a screen, uh, listening to someone speak for a little less than an hour, hopefully, 
maybe this is all new to you and you're like, yeah, I really don't know the answer to that question. I, I really don't get this thing at all. Is it, in fact, is it almost time to go? For others, uh, you've maybe just never really asked the question before. And it's time to consider that. But for those who are here week after week, I think that you probably have a good idea why. You love the people that God has called together. And you're growing together with them. And yet, even as we demonstrate a commitment to being together, it can also be easy to gravitate toward treating this event, this gathering, like another social event, like another social gathering. It it can be easy to interact with just the people that are most like me. Uh, And and listen, like that's okay and it can be good uh, to have close friends in the broader community of the church, maybe even close spiritual friends who really understand us and who really are challenging us to grow. It's even good to have friends outside of the community of the church. I'm going to talk a lot about the community of the church this morning, but I, like, I, I want you to hear, like, I, I don't mean that to, to the exclusion of having friends outside of the church community, so I want you to understand that. Uh, but we need to be mindful of the fact that God is building a diverse community that is going to last forever. And there's only one thing that binds that community together It's the hope of a resurrected Savior. So we're in the middle of a sermon series in 1 Peter that we're calling Living with Hope. And in this series, we're allowing the hope of eternity to change our lives on earth. And if we really get a hold of our eternal hope, it's going to radically change who we consider to be our people. Have you ever interacted with like you know with a group of people and you're just like yeah I don't I don't know who these people are but man they're my people like like they're 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 just my people I love this type of people the gospel changes who you consider to be my people hope changes the community with whom we will spend the rest of eternity and so here's the big idea that we want to explore today say the sermon in a sentence uh, live out our common hope as God's eternal community that's what you want we want to do today. Live out our common hope as God's eternal community. You have your Bibles open to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to pick it up in verse 22 today. Peter writes, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. And this Word is the good news that was preached to you. So, Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves are like like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, 
to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying a stone, laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Church, we need to live out our common hope as God's eternal community. So the first way that Peter charges us to do that is to love one another earnestly. It's there in your notes. uh, That's our first point in the message. It comes from the first command that Peter has given us. And so last week I was teaching you how to find the command in in an epistle, in a letter like this, uh, to find the command first so that you can understand how all the parts of the sentences work together. And, And so the first command that Peter gives us in this section is to love one another earnestly. And you're going to recall that, that Peter is writing to churches who were scattered all over uh, what is modern day Turkey. It was Asia Minor, uh, a large section, a large portion of the Roman Empire. But in each of their local contexts, they would have gathered together and they would have read this letter together. And so they would have listened to those words, uh, loved one, love one another, and they would have looked around the room, just like we did at the beginning of this sermon, and they would have known exactly who Peter was talking to, and who exactly who they were being charged to love. They were being charged to love one another. See, trying to live out the Christian life the way that the New Testament describes makes absolutely no sense without devoting yourself to a specific local church where you can truly understand commands like love one another. There's a covenant group of people that God is calling you to love. There's supposed to be a unique love that characterizes the church community. So while they're they're supposed to love everyone in some way, there's to be a love that exists in the covenant community of faith that is a love like no other. So again, I'm not like downplaying the fact that Jesus called us to like love our enemies or to love our neighbor as ourself. Not downplaying that at all, but it's not quite the same as what Peter is getting at here. This is more like the command that Jesus gave in the upper room during that last meal that he was having with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. As he washed his disciples' feet, he said this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Do you think Jesus is trying to make a point? Like three times, love one another, love one another. And oftentimes we we stop that verse short and we say, you know, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love. 
Don't stop the verse short. If you have love for one another. There is something that Jesus is going after here that is unique and special and speaks volumes to the world. And so do you think that that moment had an impact on Peter? Like I just imagine him writing this letter to these churches in, in Asia Minor and, and, and as he gets to this phrase, love one another, just imagine a tear enters his eye. As he thinks back to that moment as Jesus kneeled down to wash their feet and he, he thinks about the, the other disciples with whom he had very little in common. Some of them were fishermen like him, but others were tax collectors. Others, we don't even know their background. And over the course of three years, Jesus had drawn them into a community that was so effective and, and, and so different than the people around them. And he, he humbly served them through washing their feet and he, he gave them a memorial meal to observe together to remember what was the thing that drew them together. It was called communion, right? And so Peter wants these churches to experience that same type of radical community that he had experienced with the other disciples. And he says, love one another earnestly, fervently. In other words, put some effort into it, people. Like, like This isn't just a, a natural love. This isn't just a love for your friends. Like This is a supernatural love. And I think a lot of times it's easy to say, like, like, sure, I like, I love that person in my church. I love that person in my gospel community that I see on Sunday morning, or, or the ones that I see on Sunday mornings. Like, like, I love them. Of course I love them. I, I don't hate them, that's for sure. And so then, like, I, I guess I love them, right? But how often do you earnestly, fervently act on that love? He doesn't, he doesn't just say love one another. He adds this word earnestly. Go out of your way to make sure that their needs are cared for. Commit to spending time with them. Understand what makes them tick. Help them grow in the faith. Open up your life to them. Open up your heart to them. Speak truth to them. Allow them to speak truth to you. Notice that he first uses the word brotherly love where we get uh, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, right? It's the same word, Philadelphia. But then he amplifies that word when he says love one another. He, he uses the word agapeo or agape love. That, that's that covenant, unchanging, unfailing, unmoving, unshakable love. And he's saying, take your sincere brotherly love for other believers in the church to the next and deepest possible level. Don't be satisfied to just be like, yeah, yeah, I love them. I love everybody in the church. Show it. Act on your love in the context of your local church. As you hear this letter being read out, you can look around and you can see real faces and real lives. Love those people earnestly. And if you don't have a local church, we would love to invite you in to that process with us. We're trying to do that. I believe we do a pretty good job. I believe we have room to grow in that. But we would love to have you join us in that effort. But make your brotherly love a covenant love. Make it an unshakable unwavering love. Make it an earnest and intentional love. 
And, and Peter says that it has to flow from a pure heart. It has to flow from an undivided heart that loves God and what God is doing above all else. That, that's how you get to that kind of love. Now what motivates that though? Because it's, it's not easy. That, that takes some effort. That's not going to just be you like seeing people in the lobby on a Sunday morning. See, around this central command, Peter gives them some reasons why this should be their focus. And so verse 21 starts out, kind of the, the words that we skipped over. Guess what? We don't skip over words here, and so we're going back to those now. Uh, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Now that phrase probably sounds a little weird to some of you. Like, having purified your soul, like, do I purify my soul by my obedience? Like, like that seems like not the gospel that we typically teach, right? But you'll remember uh, that last week we were studying the, the verses before this passage, of course, and uh, we were talking about how hope motivates holy obedience. That, that obedience comes through setting our hope fully on the grace that is to be received at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When we set our hope on that, and that's what we're living for, and that's what we're longing for, we are going to be motivated in holy obedience. And so we set our faith and our hope on the salvation promises of the Gospel. And then we obey God practically in light of those promises. We obey anticipating all that we're going to experience in eternity. And so there's both a positional purity that comes through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God makes us holy, but then He, cha- and he changes our nature and He sprinkles us clean and He washes us with the blood of His Son. And then there's a practical holiness that flows out of that in every true believer. And so Peter continues his thought there and he says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. And I I really wish that I had time to go into this a little bit more deeply, but it it would just take too much time. And so so he's saying this. uh, Listen carefully. Having practically applied the purity of soul that comes when we fully submit to the life-producing truth of the gospel. I'm practically applying the purity of soul that comes when I fully submit to the life-changing truth of the Gospel. Peter's talking about our practical application of the Gospel hope that gives us new life and a new nature of holiness. And he says that the aim of that is sincere, brotherly love having practically applied the purity of soul that comes when we fully submit to the life-producing truth of the Gospel, which has as its goal sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly. So love, earnest and fervent, unchanging love for other believers from a pure heart is the aim and the substance of our obedience to God's truth. If you want to obey God, if you want to live out His Gospel, it practically looks like loving His people. Love for one another must be the aim and the substance 
of our faith in the Gospel. We don't just have an individual salvation experience. We are saved into a new community. And love must be the aim of every act of obedience that flows out of the Gospel. This love for one another is built on the common experience of our eternal hope and salvation. Look at verse 23. So he says, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. So he's picking up this theme that he started in verse 3 again, this idea of being born again. So God is causing people who are dead in their sin to awaken to new life. He's giving them a new character. He's giving them a new nature. And here he says that this comes through an imperishable seed, the living and abiding Word of God, which later he says is the good news, the Gospel that was preached to you. Now, if you're thinking back to verse 3, Maybe you're like, I thought in verse 3 that, that Peter said that being born again comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That it was based on an event in the past that I can now be born again. And now Peter is saying that it comes through the living and abiding Word of God. So, like, which is it? Well, it's both. It's both. There's a historical reality of Christ's resurrection that is the power by which we are born again. The the moment in time where Jesus conquered sin, conquered the grave, gave us the hope of eternal life. There's that moment that is the foundation of us being born again. But then there's also this moment in time where that message is preached and believed and applied. And so the living word of a living Savior produces a living hope. The living Word of a living Savior produces a living hope. And it makes us a family whose bonds are not just perishable with flesh and blood. The bonds that hold us together are imperishable. We are born of an imperishable seed. Our our Father is an eternal Father with an eternal Word. Our new birth into the family of God is living and abiding. It's remaining. We say here often that that the church isn't just like a family. The church is literally a family because we have been born again through the living and abiding Word of God. So Peter quotes Isaiah chapter 40 verses 6 to 8 to drive that point home. Isaiah and Peter said that, that all flesh is like grass that withers. You think about the grass that, that, you know, right now it's like all brown and dead and it withers. It ha- and then it has temporary beauty like a flower that fades. My wife, uh, she, she dried her wedding bouquet uh, after, after our wedding, of course. And, um, like, is it even still in existence? The petals are dry somewhere in a, in a box, right? I think. The, flower, the beauty of the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains, endures forever. And then he says that that word is the good news or, or, or the gospel that was preached to you. The gospel says that you're spiritually dead, 
before God because of your sin. Your, your sin deserves the just wrath of God, but then God sent His Son to be the promised Savior and Lord. And He lived the perfect life that you cannot live, and He died the death that you deserve to die in your place for your sin. And He rose again, defeating sin and death. And when that Word is believed, we are born again. That's the Word that is living and abiding and remains forever. That's the Word of the Gospel that was preached for you. And if you don't believe that Gospel, I hate to say it, but you're not a part of the community of faith at all. That's not to say that we don't love you. It's not to say that we don't want you to become a part of the community of faith through believing the Gospel. And I would love, personally, I would love to have a conversation with you about how that can happen. But without the Gospel, you are outside of the community of faith. And for those who have heard the Gospel preached, and who have placed their faith and their hope in the good news, they have been given a new imperishable life according to the nature of the Word that they believed. So let's finish that sentence. A living Word of a living Savior produces a living hope experienced in living community. The living Word of a living Savior produces a living hope experienced in a living community. And that's the reason that Peter gives that we are to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Love one another earnestly since you have been born again by this imperishable Word. We share a common experience together of being born again through the Gospel, which makes us strangers and exiles in an earthly society. And it makes us members of a new and imperishable family. We sang it earlier. We are believers. All our hope is in the risen Son. Therefore, we are the children of God. And that common hope produces a common bond of love that has to be lived out. We, we need to look out for one another like strangers in a foreign land. And so I just want you to imagine for a moment that, that um, like say China came in and invaded our country and they were taking people captive by the hundreds and they just they went over to Oak Hill Fellowship Church and they said, you know what? You guys are all captive and we're taking you over to China and you're going to live in a prisoner of war camp here in China. How much would that common experience affect our relationship to one another? How much would, would living as exiles and strangers in that land affect how much we lean into the relationships here? It wouldn't be about the things that we don't have in common anymore. It wouldn't be about all the little disagreements and the little things that, that ruffled our feathers. It, it would be about this extreme bond that is so much different and better than our, differ- than our differences. A common experience and a common hope produces a common bond of love. So we need to come to terms with our spiritual reality. We are all uprooted. 
We are all away from home if we are truly followers of Jesus Christ and if our hope is in eternity. And so we are all eagerly longing for this promise of eternal life. That's our experience, Chinese invasion or not. But when we are more comfortable in earthly society, we can easily allow other common bonds to take over. We can allow other forms of affinity and interest to to keep us from earnestly loving one another. We can allow little offenses to get in the way because they are, 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 are bigger than the threat of not being together. Often we seek out relationships that are easy. We, we look for the people that are, are most like us who are in the same life stage, who, who have similar interests. And, and again, that, that's not all bad, right? It's not all bad. It, it's not wrong to have close friends, to share common experiences and interests with those friends. I'd be foolish and hypocritical to say otherwise. But the challenge that I want to step before us today is this. Go to great lengths to earnestly love those with whom the only thing you have in common is the fact that you have a living hope through a living Savior and look forward to living forever as God's family. Go to great lengths for that. And so for us who worship in a very comfortable society, here's the bottom line. Affinity is built around the thing that is most important to you. Affinity, what draws us together, what holds us together, is built around the thing that is most important to you. And so, gospel communities are a great place for us to strengthen ourselves in this area, right? Gospel communities, for those of you who don't know, are our our midweek gatherings where we kind of covenant together to, to be together on a regular basis and, and, and they are not separated by life stage. They're not separated by special interests. They're not separated by how much money you make or what experiences you've gone through. And all of that is very, very intentional. See, we need the full expression of the body. We, we need to learn how to earnestly love those whom God has made our spiritual brothers and sisters through the Gospel. And we realize that that's kind of hard to do with a hundred of your closest friends, right? But it's very possible to do with 10 to 12. Or 15, some of them are getting now. But gospel communities are where we want to strengthen those muscles. And, And some of us, let me just be honest, some of us need to lean into that a little harder. Because it can be so easy to just kind of check off the list to go into a gospel community, to just attend a gospel community gathering like it's an event or an activity on my calendar, but then fail to lean into the lives of the people that God has put around me. Maybe we don't even attend our gospel community at all very regularly because it's just become another thing on our calendar. We don't feel like we get much out of it. Rather, rather than a people that I am earnestly trying to love. Like your devotion in gospel community isn't devotion to an event or a gathering, it's a devotion to a people. And that's a mind shift that we have to have. And I realize that, that a lot of our gospel communities are, are 
organized around what night of the week worked best for people <laughs> and, and what location was easy to get to. And that there really isn't a lot of affinity holding you together except the gospel. But isn't that what makes it so awesome? Isn't that what makes it such a, a great opportunity to love one another earnestly? Because the gospel is the only thing that you should need to motivate your love. Affinity is built around the thing that is most important to you. Is the gospel the thing that's most important to you? How are you doing at showing earnest, fervent, unconditional love to those with whom the only common interest you have is the hope of Jesus Christ? And let me just say this by way of encouragement. Like, I see this all the time in a positive way too. I see many, many people going out of their way to have deep and intentional relationships. I remember... Let's just use this example. Dwight and I are accountability partners. I remember the day that Dwight first walked in. I'm like, yeah, I'm probably not going to get to know that guy very well. (laughs) Just because we looked that different and we just seemed that different. But he's one of my closest friends now. And we leaned into that. And we are very different, but in a lot of ways we're very similar too. I see it happening all over the place. But maybe later today in the lobby... Or, or, or later this week, uh, make an effort to go out of your way to show love to someone who you don't regularly interact with. Go out of your way to show love to somebody who you don't regularly interact with. And then take that moment to just encourage them. Maybe you have a moment to acknowledge the hope of the gospel or you know talk about the sermon or whatever it was. Maybe... Take that a step further and have somebody from your gospel community or or just in the church at large over for dinner this month. Schedule a time this month where you're going to have somebody over for dinner who who you wouldn't typically have over for dinner. who's, Who's not like you or who you want to get to know at a deeper level. Now even as we go after loving earnestly like that, there are still things that are going to get in the way of God's goals for His new community. And that's why we need the second thing uh, to live out our common hope as God's eternal community. We need to uh, leave behind ugly heart attitudes. Leave behind ugly heart attitudes. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. It says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So if we're going to be this loving community that, that loves each other earnestly, we cannot tolerate in our own hearts act, attitudes or activities that are going to threaten that community. We have to leave behind ugly heart attitudes. Peter says, put them Away. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but when I read the words put away, I think about like putting away laundry. We spend a large portion of our lives putting away laundry. And, uh, and so I think about like I'm going to put my laundry in the closet, but I'm kind of fully intending to take that laundry back out and to put it on again. That's what I think of when I think of put away. But that's not what Peter is talking about here, right? 
This, this is more like, like, have you ever uh, had that moment where you go into your closet and you, you clean out your closet in order to send the things away to goodwill? Uh, husbands, like your wives, tell you to do that, right? And, uh, and so you, you, or you, maybe they're just going right in the trash because they need to be burned. They're that, they're that bad. You've worn them that, out that much. Um, but this is more like that. This is, the, the, the word means to stop, to get rid of, to rid yourselves. You're, you're sending the stuff off to goodwill that you never plan to wear again because it's taking up space in your closet and doesn't match your new style. So if you're going to have a sincere, earnest love for one another, uh, there is no place in the closet of your heart for old, destructive attitudes. And Peter gives us five. Other lists of unholy attitudes in the Bible have more lists, but Peter wants us to focus on these five. Uh, really, they're, they're four attitudes in an activity, but you get it. So think of this like your closet clean-out checklist. Anything that matches this description it has to be sent away to goodwill. Your wife is now giving you the checklist. If it's old, if it has a hole, it's going away. It's getting thrown out. There's not room in your closet of your heart for it anymore. And, and I just want to say this before we start. You're going to read these words, and you're going to, seem to, you're going to be tempted to think that they are extreme. And you're going to be tempted to think, like, well, that's not me. Like, like I, I wouldn't say that I'm thinking or feeling malice, quote-unquote, because you have a certain definition of malice in your mind. But I want you to guard yourself against that, okay? I, I, I want you to open up your heart to the work of the Holy Spirit, and, and I want you to listen carefully to the description of these words. And ask the, the Spirit, Lord, is this me? Show me if this exists in my heart. And so the first word in the checklist, first attitude is malice. The word for malice means uh, badness in quality or wickedness. It's the desires of your heart, met or unmet, that cause you to seek the harm of someone else. And so are there ever any times in the church where our desires are offended and we act out in anger? Does that ever happen in the church? It starts in your thoughts. And someone ticks you off or frustrates you, and, and you got to get angry about it. You get, you get frustrated about it, and you dwell on it. Maybe they, they failed to do something, and so you, you feel kind of hurt or offended by that. See, malice in other passages is closely related to bitterness and anger. And so you get madder and madder about it. And maybe you're the type of person who blows up and you, you tell them off and you, you show them. You, said, you say a biting remark. I think probably more often, and especially in this culture, people stuff it down and they get passive-aggressive about it. And you turn the cold shoulder to people that God has called you to love. Maybe, not always, but maybe... You look for little ways to, to make that offender suffer or to at least feel the pain of offending you. Maybe you leave the church altogether without really working through anything. Or you just kind of make yourself scarce and 
Hope nobody notices. That's malice. And you've got to get it out of the closet of your heart. You need to stop entertaining that thought. You need to recognize how harmful and ugly it is and how destructive it is to God's family and and go to God and ask Him to put it away for you. Ask Him to help you to have the hope that He is at work in that situation or offense. And He's at work in the person who offended you. And even more importantly, He's at work in you. And He wants to do something in your heart. He wants to produce holy, obedient love in you. Maybe you just put a little check if you see any malice in your heart. There's one to come back to. The second item on our checklist is deceit. The word for deceit carries uh, the idea of, of bait for fish. It, it's, a, it's a trick or, or, or cunning that's used to lure people away from truth in love. So in the church, sometimes there are evil people who use deceit to, to lure people to their side of an argument that has broken out. They just say things that aren't true or the tell half-truth so, so that it looks obvious that they are right and everybody else is wrong. Maybe they'll use deceit to cover up for something that, that would look bad for the church or a leader in the church. And, and so there's, there's kinds of deceit out there that, that work that way. Maybe they won't tell a person what's really wrong in their heart because they have a fear of man issue. And, and so, so they're holding back and they're saying, no, I'm fine, don't worry about it. But really inside their heart, that's deceitful. They're lying about that. It's not fine. It needs to get taken care of. Deceit has no place in the church. See, we serve a God who is always full of grace and truth. Full measure at all times, grace and truth. He needs no deceit to promote His way because His way is always perfect and good, and true. And so we need to lean into His truth. Deceit has no place in the family of God, and neither does hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is a lot like deceit. It's trickery, but it's a little more specific. It's, it's trickery about who I really am. It comes from the word for a play actor in a theater who would have worn a mask in order to portray the character that they were playing. And so hypocrisy is is putting on a face that you are a loving and holy and good person who's out for everybody in the church's best interests, when in reality you're really all about your own selfish desires. So the word for hypocrisy is actually the uh, the opposite word, the antonym for sincere that bro- that that Peter used up in in sincere brotherly love. Hypocrisy is the opposite of sincere brotherly love. So you have a fake brotherly love. You've, you've put on a front so that people will trust you and, and, and will go to you to gain influence. Or some, sometimes hypocrisy shows up when, when people don't really want to invite others into their lives because it might bother them or it might mean that they're going to be confronted in their sin or something like that. 
And so they, they hide what they're truly going through and what's going on in their heart because they're afraid of what people might think of them. Or they don't want people to tell them that they're wrong. That's a, a form of hypocrisy that disrupts the community of faith and keeps us from fully being able to love one another earnestly. To refuse to open up to someone for accountability to the sin that we all know is there is hypocrisy. In all of its forms, hypocrisy is really just protecting and promoting yourself. You're, you're driven by your own selfish desires. You, you aren't motivated to grow in holiness. You, you aren't motivated by love to see God's people grow in Him. You just want to look like you are holy. That's hypocrisy. And that attitude will destroy a church. If a church can't trust one another, they can't love one another. And so we, we don't need hypocrisy when we have gospel hope. Gospel hope is what drives away hypocrisy. We know that we aren't perfect. That's why we had to come to Jesus. That's why we had to come together. And so our goal is to just grow together in Him. It's not to promote ourselves. It's not to protect ourselves. It's to make much of Jesus Christ. Gospel hope drives away hypocrisy. The fourth attitude on Peter's checklist that has to go is envy. Envy is wanting what someone else has and despising them for it. So there are a million ways that envy can enter a church and disrupt the community. Uh, people sometimes will get envious over roles in the church. They, they wanted some position of influence and they didn't get it. They wanted to be recognized in the church. Or maybe they wanted a, a certain title that someone else has. They wanted their opinion to hold a greater weight in a certain decision than it does. Other times people are envious of attention or relationships. And they see the attention that one person or family gets from a leader and they want that for themselves. They, they see two people building deep relationships with each other and they, they wish that they had that same connection even though they often aren't willing to put in the effort to get to that level of connection. Envy is opposed to the love that God desires for His church because it is dissatisfied with the hope that God provides. And again, it is focused on itself. God has something that He's doing in His church. And He has something for you to contribute to that. And He's given you everything that you need in order to participate in His mission in the church. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy. Those are the first four attitudes. And, and sometimes they can result in this last activity that Peter, Peter mentions, uh, slander. Slander. Slander is speaking negatively of someone in order to defame them. It can either be behind their back or, or to their face. And so leaders are often the target of slander, but they are not the only target. 
Anyone can be the object of slander if another person has malice or deceit or hypocrisy or envy in their heart. So sometimes this comes in the form of gossip. Like, like, did you hear what they said or did? Can you believe how terrible they are? And usually it's a little bit of a half-truth or an untruth that's involved in that. Other times, this can come in the form of sarcasm. Do you, you know the old saying, in every pound of sarcasm, there's an ounce of truth, right? And sarcasm is often just slander disguised as humor. I know that some of you are strongly prone to sarcasm. And I know that at times, like I admit, like sometimes I think that's funny, you know. But it's something that you have to use extremely carefully. In other cultures, they, they don't even have a category for sarcasm. It's kind of a, it's somewhat of an American thing, to be honest with you. And um, you have to be so careful. And in most circumstances, in most circumstances, you are wise not to use sarcasm. Especially when people are present who are not your closest friends and really get you. Slander, though, comes in many forms and for many reasons. And all of it has to go. All of it has to go. And so here's what we've got to do. We've got to clean out our closet regularly. We must put those things away for good. We've got to send these things out of the thrift store. And, and often there are clothes in my closet that I don't wear at all at home. And, and Katie will be like, it's time for me to go to the thrift store. Can you please go through your closet? You've got to take opportunities like that to check your heart, to go through and see, is it there? And I'll be like, wow, I don't even remember that I still had that shirt. That probably should go. It's taking up space that doesn't belong. It's not my style anymore. And the same is true of our hearts. Sometimes these attitudes can be in our hearts for a long time and go unnoticed. And that's how they do their damage. Sin is subtle and deceptive. And you may not use the word slander for your sarcasm, but when you're really honest with yourself, that's what it's been, at least at times, for you. Or maybe you wouldn't use the word malice. You'd use a a kinder word like frustration or venting. But it's festering up in your soul and it's going unchecked. And if you are struggling to pursue community to the degree that God wants you to in a church, if you're unmotivated to pursue loving one another earnestly, like Peter was talking about, I'd be willing to bet that one of these attitudes is operating underneath the surface and you just got to go find it. If you aren't actively showing earnest love to your brothers and sisters in the church, you've got to get out Peter's checklist and leave behind the ugly attitudes of the heart. And so we have to perform this heart check often. And I'm going to do something that's very untypical of me. Uh, we're going to leave it here so that we can do the heart check. Okay? We're, we're, we're going to leave point three in your notes blank. I know some of you that's going to be hard. We're going to come back to that in two weeks. Dwight's going to preach next week. But, but for now, the worship team is going to come and we're just going to spend some time doing this heart check. Spend some time before the Lord. 
And I do want to leave you with the hope as the worship team comes, the hope of what we, the rest of what we are going to study is going to be. See, Peter says that, that we put away uh, this envy and malice and slander and hypocrisy and all these things. We put them away by longing for the pure spiritual milk of the Gospel Word of God. The goodness of the Lord. And then he lays out this vision of what God is doing, what He's building in the church. It is a, a beautiful vision that, that God is building this holy temple where He Himself wants to reside. Where He Himself has promised to reside. That, that He is calling people who are very different but whose hope is set on Jesus together to be a dwelling place for Him. And they get to be priests together. They get to bring spiritual sacrifices of worship. And we'll talk about what that means in a couple weeks. They get to be a chosen people and a holy nation. A people who are for His own possession, who get to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called them out of darkness and into the marvelous light. God has hope for His community and I believe that He is doing an awesome thing here at Oak Hill. And we just want to get everything out of the way that would interrupt that work. I've been thinking this week about Song of Solomon and uh, it's about the marriage relationship. But Song of Solomon, he says, uh, remove the foxes, the little foxes that would destroy the vineyard. And the picture is the vineyard is the relationship and the, the little foxes are just all the little things that would, would kind of steal away your attention and would end up disrupting the work. God has a beautiful mission for us. He is doing a fantastic work and we want to proclaim His excellencies clearly to Selenko, to the rest of the world. And so let's just do the hard work, folks. I've been doing the hard work all week. Let's do it right now. The worship team is just going to play for a moment and then we are going to sing about the firm foundation of Jesus our Lord, the stone that the builders rejected, but that we have believed and we come to Him. Let's pray for a moment. Let me just go through the checklist in your mind. Lord, search my heart and know me. Test my thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Lord, is there malice there? I probably wouldn't have called it that, but do you call it that? their hypocrisy deceit is there envy
Jesus, we come to you this morning. The living stone against whom we are built, by whom we are built. And we confess that, that these things have no place in your church and so we want to get them out of, your, out of our lives, out of our hearts. I ask that you would remove them from our hearts by setting our hope firmly on Jesus. That we would repent by turning from these sins and turning and embracing Christ fully. And that we would do the things that we need to do to truly love one another deeply from a pure heart. I pray that you would be building a church that, that is so full of love for one another. And that you would not let anything get in the way of that. No petty disagreement, no, no personal preference, nothing, Lord. I thank you for the unity that you have preserved for so many years here at Oak Hill. I thank you for the ways that, that you have caused us to lay aside our rights time and time again. And I just pray that you would help us to do it again. I thank you for the love that this church has for you and the, the desire that they have to grow up into you. And so I pray that you would make us the church that you want us to be. A, a living temple for you and where we experience your manifest presence at work in our lives. Would you do a powerful work in our midst, we pray. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's sing. Stand together. Thank you for listening to Oak Hill Fellowship Church. Stay connected with us by finding us on social media or by joining us Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Until then, remember that you are loved.